Welcome to the Exit Strategy with myself, Natalie Holloway. This podcast has been designed to explore the transition process from military to civilian. We speak to members who have made the transition, organizations who support the transition, as well as delve deeper into topics to gain further understanding. This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Bungarong people, and I wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. I would also like to pay my respects to their elders past and present and Aboriginal elders or other communities who may be listening today. Hello everyone, I hope you are all having a wonderful day. Now today's episode is part two of my conversation with Christian and Corbin from APAC Services. In part one, Christian and Corbin talked about their transition out of defence, what their experience was like and the things that they would tell someone who was going through the transition process. In part two, we, um, Christian and Corbin, talk about DVA advocacy, ways uh, or things that would be beneficial for members who are submitting claims, the best ways to go about it, how to keep records of incidences that you may not be quite ready to submit yet, and Christian and Corbin talk about their organisation, why they chose to be a paid advocacy service, ways that they hope to support the organisations who help defence members and their families, and also they give us a bit of an insight into what their future endeavours are for their organisation. I will link AVAC Services' um, website and social handles in the show notes of this episode for anyone who may be wanting to reach out to them or if you'd like to write down DBA advocacy and have them as someone who you could potentially contact when you are ready to implement your um, transition exit strategy. I hope you all enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it with these two. They really are passionate about supporting the defence community through the transition process, through DBA advocacy and helping you submit claims and alleviate the stress. If you did like this episode, please um, send me a message and let me know what you thought about it. And also, if you are listening to this episode and going, you know what, my mate could really benefit from listening to this, share it with them because there's some really, really awesome information that Christian and Corbin both share in this episode. So I hope you all enjoyed listening to it and I will talk to you all soon. What are you both doing now? Yeah, so since leaving, you know, I've, I've been very lucky to have the support from DVA and that's probably something that I also think that people don't recognise and appreciate as much that, you know, the Department of Veterans Affairs is there to support individuals, you know, albeit there are some systemic issues at play. And I think that the DDA are doing a very good job probably addressing most of those, you know, with a legislative reform and things like that. But, you know, without the Department of Veterans Affairs being involved in my my rehab and my, my life, um, I wouldn't be alive. Um, they've been they've been amazing to me now. And I understand that, that that's not always the case. You know, my, my dad spent quite some time, you know, through his process being he's covered under two different legislative acts you know one one is not very forgiving whilst the other was so i i had seen how that played out with him and over his time he actually 
he started advocating for veterans as well. And I think that, you know, when I got out, there was probably a little bit of hatred in me. And that's one thing I wish I didn't have now, um, you know, retrospectively. And, but that, I've got to say, it drove me down, you know, this path where I just wanted to help others seek restitution from and, and closure from their time in defence. And I think one thing I realised through the process is I was very, very lucky through transition that my dad had been doing uh, advocacy for quite some time. He helped me get my ducks in a row through my own claims. So my process was pretty seamless. It was very smooth um, and it allowed me to move on and seek that closure, I think, a little bit quicker um, because I think a lot of people leave that DVA door open uh, and they keep going back and forth and it kind of perpetuates uh, their, 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 you know, um, their suffering, should you call it that? Whereas, you know, I was able to seek that closure and then move forward. So then I, I like my father, I, I started advocating for veterans. Initially, I started doing it um, as a volunteer for my own, you know, for my own organisation. But then, you know, uh, I uh, doing it for free and, you know, word of mouth uh, took over quite quickly and I became inundated, not realising how many people actually needed help. So I actually became burnt out at one stage. But then I kind of rejigged um, and reframed everything and committed to some treatment and got better. And then from there, I actually started working at RSLWA um, as an advocate. And then now I'm currently, uh, yeah, a, a founder and uh, one of the owners of AVAC Services. So I'm, you know, I don't advocate for individual veterans anymore. Um, I, I, the way I look at it is I advocate for the veteran community now being uh, the managing director of the business. So although I don't tend to individual cases as much anymore, um, I like to think that, you know, what I'm doing is hopefully going to address some bigger picture themes that will hopefully in turn assist the wider veteran community. So, yeah, now, now, right now, I'm the Managing Director of AVAC Services. And then for yourself, Corbin, did you have a similar, um, like, transition out story in terms of doing the advocacy? No, mine was actually a little bit different. I, um, so I went, uh, I had the goal originally to get out and do some kind of study and that was driven originally from me trying to find an alternative pathway to service while I was still in. I was trying to find another way to stay in and one of those I was considering was becoming an a army or Air Force, Air Force nurse or even attempting to um, sit in the GAMSAT and go to medical school. So I was still trying to stay in my core in one way or another, I was trying to stay inside medical corps. But when I got out, I ended up actually finding a delineation between platoon command and uh, and teaching, like high school teaching specifically. So I um, have been studying teaching for the last three and a half years and I actually finished the course in two weeks. So it's, there's been other things I've been trying to um, do with, with Christian prior to helping him build AVAC was the, um, we were dabbling in other different um, business ventures that never really got off, uh, off the ground running. But then, yeah, now, so now I'm a part owner of AVAC, AVAC as well, and then also a, a director of HR and innovation there. So now we're working towards uh, working together as a team to then serve the wider veteran community and help those through similar situations as us. If we can take that stress off them with their claims, then that's the goal. But I don't have any advocacy background. I'm more more just focusing on the business side of things and the um, human resources area and let Christian control the advocacy since he is the, the expert on that in that field. So if, um, if we've got uh, people listening who don't know what advocacy is and all that, how would you explain that to someone? Yeah, um, look, so 
I think advocacy is a very broad term. Um, obviously, advocating for you know one's one's needs or interests. But in terms of, uh, I suppose the way we look at advocacy at AVAC, um, uh, you know, without sounding condescending, we we want to bubble wrap clients. We want to bubble wrap people, and uh, I think that's what advocacy should be. The, the it should be client centric. So the client should always be at the, the middle of everything that's done, and everything that revolves around that should always always be in their best interest. And it shouldn't just be, uh, in my mind anyway, it shouldn't be individual, so specific. It should be more uh, holistic because, you know, when you're advocating for someone's um, interests, um, it, it's it's pervasive in that nature. It's it's not just you know, isolated to one aspect because that will have a domino effect to, to other domains in their life as well. So I think advocacy in, in terms of veterans advocacy, you know, is you know, generally covers things like you know, obviously DVA claims, liability compensation, income support through DVA, income support through, you know, the Commonwealth superannuation through uh, retrospective medical discharges. You know, when the Defence Force Ombudsman has their, their processes, you know, which is kind of wrapping up a little bit. But when that was open, you know, obviously assisting veterans with, you know, submitting um, their submissions to the DFO, you know, it, it's got some pretty, uh, previously it was pretty much just DVA. That's what a lot of the ESOs used to roll out was pretty much just DVA and ComSuper. Over time that has kind of expanded. And so it, it, it revolves around everything now from helping veterans find um, rehab providers, helping veterans find allied health providers, medical providers, anything that really folds into that well-being space and helps them seek the closure, restitution, and and just the ability to seek uh, to close that chapter, as Corbin was saying, and then move forward and you know forget about everything to do with DVA defence and just focus on uh, their life and treat uh, and, and their treatment and getting that quality of life back. That's what I think advocacy is, is protecting the client so they can focus on everything but the process that is. Um, Because it can be a really, really tricky process, especially when people are trying to navigate it by themselves. Um, And it can be a lot of stress as well. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I I think that there's certain things. So if, if if there's clear evidence... And someone is in a in a good mindset. I think claims can, so certain claims can be tackled independently. I, I think when you start adding things in like complex uh, mental health conditions or complex stresses. So when you talk about causality, you really need to refine causation or causality so that it doesn't become convoluted. Because a lot of the time, people go down a bit of a rabbit hole and they what they think the um, cause their you know mental health condition or you know um, attributed to um, their musculoskeletal conditions might be somewhat true but in terms of legislation claims need to meet legislative factors um, and if they're not satisfied the claim will just not get accepted but if they reshape their narrative without and by no means of fabrication but if they just open up that left and right arc a little bit more they would have got the claim accepted so i think you know, a lot, of, a lot of the time things can be done independently, but also I think people need to objectively look at the situation and go, if I commit to this myself, am I going to go down the rabbit hole and have an acquired bias and uh, unfortunately be of detriment to my own claim? So I think that sometimes, um, you know, for a claim for hearing loss or tinnitus for someone who was in the infantry, that's relatively easy. But when you start moving to more complex claims and about certain spinal conditions become more complex as well, you know, that's when I think uh, the, the least that people should be able to do is go out there and, and get that advice for free. 
and um, and then make that informed decision about do I need this um, do I need to pay uh, for ongoing representation or you know is this something I can do myself or you know would a voluntary uh, volunteer service you know like the uh, typical you know, RSLs provide is that going to help me out as well because uh, I think there is a place in the veteran community for your paid services your volunteer services and everything in between as well. So for yourself and yours, uh, your the organisation that both you and Corbin are a part of, where would you sit with all of that? Like where would people, when would people come to you guys? Yeah, um, so I, I, we, we get people coming to us, you know, um, to be completely honest, all the way through the process. So we did some statistics during the um, uh, last month and I, I think it was around, it was about 70% of people had claimed before uh, and around 30% had never claimed. Um, and in, in that, uh, I think it was about 75% had a, a white card and the rest uh, had no treatment card or had a gold card. So it, it was pretty interesting. Um, so we get people coming to us through various stages in the process. I think ideally we want people coming to us before they engage in the process because you know, if, if things are muddled up, yes, we can fix them but it becomes a lot harder, you know, it becomes like fighting an uphill battle. So if people come to us or, or seek any advice from any advocacy service, they should do it before they commit to the claim themselves. Because, you know, um, one, one thing that a lot of people do is they claim specific injuries. And whilst I do agree with that in some regard, it can also be of detriment. So for instance, if someone claims a fracture of the, fr- the femur, that's great, but typically that's going to be a result is resolved. You know, fractures do heal over time. So what should be claimed is more a, you know, a femur injury because that broader claim will then um, encapsulate both the fracture and if there's any osteoarthritis or anything else that's more sinister that's been diagnosed. So I think that's where people might shoot themselves in the foot. So I think ideally people should be coming to us before they engage DVA or ComSuper or whatever it may be um, so they can make they can give them informed advice and make an informed decision about what, what they should do next, whether it be do it by themselves or use another um, a service like ours. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think informed um, choices is really big, right? Like if you, do, you don't know what you don't know. Um, yeah, exactly. And if you don't ask questions, then you're not going to know if it's something that you can actually claim for or go through that process for. I agree. Yeah, and that's you know our initial consultations are honestly just an opportunity to um, really give veterans um, that that informed advice. And you know, it, we do not mind whether people use our service or not, but we want we want people to have you know all the information before them so they can make that decision. And so it's why we do send them out a scope of works. And it's not because we want to, um, them to you know to sell our service, but we want to, them to know what they can and can't do. You know, we want to clearly define their left and right of arc so that even if they do it by themselves, they've got a plan of attack and, and they've got they've mapped out what they what they will and what they want to commit to. And at least that hopefully, even if they don't use our services, but they use the information from the initial consult that they can they too can seek their own restitution. Yeah, definitely. So when um, when is a good time for people to start exploring like the DBA claim side of things? That's a that's a good question. Probably as early as possible. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, yeah. I, so, I, think... I guess the reason why I ask this is because I know that there's a lot of um, people, even in my own circles, and probably people that you guys knew as well when you were serving, 
it's a matter of I don't want to do anything about this because I don't want it to impact my time in defence. But is that something that they should be worried about? Uh, yeah, so I, I think that um, I personally think that people should start claiming uh, when they realise that either they might be medically transitioned or separated, or when when they feel that an injury is significant enough and and that they you know they might transition to reserves or something like that, and they're going to need ongoing treatment outside of defence. They're typically the times I feel is the best place to claim. Now I understand a lot of people are somewhat reluctant to claim because they're worried about employability, deployability and those type of things. Uh, and yes, I mean, typically DVA have uh, reporting obligations to Joint Health Command to, do, to, to notify them when a, a member has claimed. So that does obviously serve for some anxiety. So I guess one thing I, I like to think of is, you know, people should be claiming when transition obviously is on the horizon, but if they're not going to claim in that regard, then I think that people should keep a little uh, a little black book or a little book that they can, you know, time date stamp any incidents, occurrences, and things of, of the such that will add value should they want to claim at a later date. I, I also think that when people claim that they should try and fully encapsulate everything from the get-go instead of um, drip feeding, you know, additional claims as they surface. Uh, and the reason for that is, you know, um, I've seen it through my, my dad's life that uh, when people don't claim everything from the get-go, that they will become a product of the system itself and that they will, unfortunately, you know, they'll, they'll keep coming and going through the DVA system and that, that alone will actually perpetuate and even compound on their mental health because, um, you know, unfortunately in this world with, you know, medical providers that, you know, the medical industry is a business and, you know, when DVA... Uh, patients, you know, rock up, it's a, it's clear that the government is going to pay for that treatment. So, you know, doc, doctors are very, very, they do favour a lot of DVA patients and, you know, will commit to surgeries and treatment pathways and will write medical certificates because they know that DVA are going to pay the bills. Uh, and, and that sounds horrible, but that is unfortunate, the reality that we are dealing with. So, and when, when doctors, you know, continually uh, write, you know, medical certificates for veterans, they too, the veteran feels that they're actually more so incapacitated than they initially were. And then that, I think in my mind, that hinders their ability to, to kind of seek closure and move forward, you know, so it becomes somewhat toxic. So I, I personally think that, yeah, I, I think claim everything from the get-go and make sure that when people claim, that they claim broadly, they don't claim specifically. And the reason for that is, you know, I, I, if someone had a fracture, you know, 10 years ago and they're claiming fracture today, that, that's great. The fracture will likely get accepted. But the reality is that fracture is no longer a fracture because it's healed. So, but there is a chance that that fracture has, you know, it might be something more sinister today, something degenerative like osteo. So it makes sense to claim, say if it was a fracture of a femur, it makes sense to claim femur injury opposed to femur fracture because if the, the fracture won't, will not pose and ongoing impairment, whereas the osteoarthritis may. So if you claim the fracture injury, it will encapsulate both the initial fracture. Um, so the femur injury it will encapsulate both the femur fracture and also the, the osteoarthritis and both will get accepted. Whereas if you just claim the fracture, that's all that'll get looked at and that's all that'll get accepted. Now that's typically, there are some very good delegates at DVA who will be a bit more diligent and will look um, a little bit more holistically at the claim, but you can't rely on that either because, you know, it, it is a big system, you know, it's Australia wide, nationwide, 
And, you know, the different DDA teams throughout Australia do vary in terms of quality control. So you are somewhat risking it that it might be assigned to a team who isn't as diligent as another team at DDA. And therefore, you might be somewhat um, shortchanged or overseen. So in terms of with that, like if people are waiting to do like a mass um, bulk claiming, I guess, I don't know how else to word that. That sounds bad. Um, but if they're planning on doing that and not doing it as they go through their time through defense because of those concerns of things like um being able to deploy and being service ready and all that jazz what would be your recommendation for them to be able to track injuries that have occurred through that time to submit when they do decide to submit their claim yeah, look, so for the big thing, um, a, a lot of people overcomplicate the claims process. Now, if someone has served, um, you know, in a combat corps in the army and, and they've served for the, at least their ROSO, it's more likely than not that a lot of the degenerative conditions will be accepted. Now, that's, I say that very, uh, you know, it's not always the case. There's obviously complicating factors that do exist. Um, you know, there are certain diagnoses that are a lot harder to get accepted than others. And so there are some things that are intertwined that do pose some more complexities to, to it. But I do think that um, if you're not going to claim it um, because you want to preserve that employability, deploy, deployability piece, then I think that a little book and time date stamp. Now, for, for cumulative conditions, so cumulative claims like maybe osteoarthritis that are attributed to what they call, they call them rigors, so due, due to the rigors of service. You don't need to really demonstrate, you know, an exact incident or an occurrence that caused it. It's just due to the cumulative effect of, of your service. So it's a little bit easier to claim. But if there's certain claims that require someone to have you know, been involved in an incident, so potentially PTSD or uh, a fracture, which is not a cumulative condition, it's to do with an, an event or an incident, you know, incidents are one thing that you will need evidence. So. Um, my, my advice to people would be to time date stamp it and keep a thorough record of anything that's gone on. Um, so if it hasn't been reported in like a sentinel report, that's not, not an issue. But make sure that anyone who's, who's around who can corroborate the claim, you know, is able to do so. So if you can get a statement from them. Now, the other thing is obviously people go with incidents. If it's not reported, then they also fear the ramifications for not reporting it. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't stress about that too much either. I would be thinking, you know, you don't have to explicitly say names. You, you know, you can redact certain things or omit certain things. Um, but as long as someone can corroborate that an incident did occur, I, I think that's that's the big thing. You know, there's, there's not really, in my mind, necessity for photos and things like that. But just a, a simple, this happened on this day, this person was present. And that's generally going to be enough. And then a little bit of a statement from that person to corroborate the claim or the incident. I guess... With that, they then just provide you with the information at the time and then you go through the claim. Yeah, correct. So, yeah, and so, you know, for incidents, most of the time they're, they're related to mental health um, or you're talking about a, like a workplace accident where someone uh, injured, you know, a, a sustained a physical injury. Typically with physical injuries, you will see some, you know, maybe a sentinel report or something, or, you know, a clinical presentation recorded. But with your mental health stresses, that's where those incidents typically aren't reported. It might be an incident of bullying, harassment, or this or that. So it's those ones which, you know, getting all that evidence and whether you use an advocate or not, 
you know, make sure it meets the legislative requirements and then make sure that information is trans uh, is articulated to the treating specialist. So usually a psychiatrist or a psychologist so that they too can understand, you know, what's caused it. So they then when, when they're asked by the Department of Veterans Affairs, you know, they can communicate that. And I guess with things like when you are seeing psych services being open and honest with the psychologists in those teams so that they can timestamp it for you in their notes. Yes, exactly right. Yeah. So um, it sounds like we that the process of doing the DBA claims and linking in with you guys can kind of start to happen as you're planning that transition out. Yeah, that's correct. And that's, that's, that's who we really um, we want to focus on is, is, is really protecting those vulnerable veterans through the transition pro, uh, period to so that five-year window where we find that most veterans are, become very vulnerable to suicide. You know, if we can, if we can have some um, steps in there that might mitigate suicide, um, I, I, I think that's, uh, you know, that, that's the kind of impact we, you know, we as a service want to have on the wider veteran community. We want to, want to prevent, you know, suicide and, and veteran suicide, you know, and uh, so, so one thing, you know, that we, we're thinking of, and it's just down in the pipeline of, of, of thoughts, uh, you know, we spoke about transition and how, you know, I was very fortunate to be able to be there for Corbin and answer his questions. You know, it, it'd be amazing to, um, to roll out a veteran, like transition peer. So someone who's recently transitioned through the period of the process themselves and can be there as a, you know, as a, as a shoulder to lean on, but also you can ask questions because they've, they too have only just transitioned. So they might be able to, they might be two or three years ahead of you, but they can provide that reassurance or, or point you in the right direction should you have, should you have questions. Um, that's one thing I think that this, you know, the community really needs, the veteran community. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I know that. I sometimes recommend for people to go to the peer support workers through open arms. Some of those are transitioned yep. members who have gone through the peer support route that way. <laughs> so I'll sometimes recommend that people go to those. So that's another option for that. But I think that's such an awesome idea to have more people out there for those who are transitioning out or who have transitioned to reach out to, to find, just to navigate it because it's confusing. It's a process. Oh, it is. And, and I think that, you know, the process is very convoluted. And when you've got, when you're, when you're involved in your own claim, you become somewhat more emotionally invested. And, you know, when unfavorable determinations come your way that are sound, you know, they're not questionable you know, it can be very hard hitting and, and very hard to digest. And then, so when you, when a claim has been rejected, which, you know, unfortunately probably should have been, should have been rejected, people then take that personally and then they don't know their rights to appeal. So they will appeal it, not knowing that the VRB are also bound by legislation. So they can't accept things, you know, outside of legislation either. And even, at, you know, if you go to the AAT, which is obviously, you know, um, the next step after the VRB, that yet again, they don't have powers to change legislation. So uh, I don't think people understand that. The other thing that people don't really understand is, you know, people want to pursue common law. You know, I typically steer people away from that because, you know, you, you don't want to risk uh, everything that's on, on the table. And that's what common law can do. Uh, I'm not saying it always does that, but that common law election can really complicate the process. And I think that people go, you know, people get really caught up on the compensation piece. Now, there, there's there's so many different forms of compensation through DVA. There's economic loss, non-economic loss. Um, but 
you know, the compensation that people typically refer to as your permanent impairment compensation, that's not there to compensate anything but then really pain and suffering and functional loss. You know, there are so many other types of compensation available. So there's income support, incapacity payments, treatment is a form of compensation. So when you start adding all of the value that you know, DDA actually can provide and all those benefits up, there is a lot of support there and there's a lot of value um, to be added to, to a veteran's life. Yeah, I guess one of my other questions is, so for those that do get their claims met and they they may have like income um, support or stuff like, um, like PI claims and stuff like that, does that then, like if a veteran starts to feel like they are doing better and they want to pursue certain, um, I don't know, like, volunteering or employment that may impact that what is your advice yeah. there yeah look so um i i i'll be the first one to, well probably not the first one uh, to say that money doesn't change anything so a lot of people you know put this compensation on a pedestal and they think oh as soon as i'm compensated and get a gold card my life's going to be great it's it's it, money and gold card doesn't it's not going to make anyone's life any better treatment will so um my my advice to everyone is to Focus on everything that's going to add value and increase their well-being, uh, the quality of life. So if that means pursuing, you know, volunteer arrangements, you know, meaningful work, um, treatment, whatever it may be, that should be everyone's first priority, not the money that comes into the bank. Because uh, I can, you know, I, I received obviously my compensation, and although that alleviated the financial pressure in my life, you know, we're naturally inclined to to, to look for stress. That's what our body does. And, you know, just because that stress was alleviated, my, my mind then goes, okay, I don't have to worry about that, but I'm going to worry about everything else now. And that's, that's typically what I find um, happens with veterans through the process. So I think people just need to understand that if, you know, you, put, you go down that path and you commit to 10 hours of work a week or whatever it may be, if, that's going to, if you're going to lose $20,000 of compensation, I, it's worth it. Because um, the reality is longevity of your well-being is more important than $20,000. Yeah, yeah it, it's that whole purpose thing, right? Like if you're feeling like you're lost and you're not meeting goals or doing things that are meaningful and that's being held back by the in, the money, then it's yeah. going to negatively then impact on the mental health because you're not doing anything that you're getting satisfaction out of. No, exactly. And, you know, I, I really don't think that, you know, um, an additional ten to twenty thousand dollars on you know some compensation is going to reduce suicide. I think that meaningful engagement and and treatment will. So I think that's why that should be the focal point. Um, if anything, that should be the main focus throughout the whole process. Yeah, yeah, I like that. What What about in terms of if people wanted to use your services? Because I know that you're based in Western Australia. Do you only consult or advocate for people that are in Western Australia or do you are you able to advocate for people all, all around Australia? Yeah so um, I think the beauty about COVID um, you know the silver lining to COVID is that we really identify that tech can do quite a lot so yeah our, our predominant um, workforce actually is you know resides in WA we do have a you know a couple people over east but they work remotely as well. So we are going to open an office over east at some point. Um, that, that, that's our long-term goal. Uh, but at the moment, you know, we only have the office in WA. That being said, with tech, we only 50% of our clients actually reside in WA. So 
because of tech, we are able to link them in with telehealth um, solutions as well and use the same medical providers that we would do in WA. So um, yeah, the the doesn't matter where people are in Australia. Uh, we've even had clients overseas, although it does become a, a lot um, a lot harder um, to obviously access things like treatment and things like that. You know, previously I've, I've helped people in like some veterans in Russia, Thailand, Spain, um, all over the world. So it can be done remotely. Oh, that's awesome! And um, where can people find you? Yeah, so um, it, it, we, we just asked most people to go to our website. So it's www.avac-services.com. That's that's where we ask. And from there, you know, there's an inquiry form. If people just fill that out, one of our team will be in touch. And then from there, kind of how the process works is once someone submits that inquiry form, then our team logs on to DDA and we get a bit of a snapshot about where, where everything's at. So we can see what's been accepted, rejected, you know, when things were submitted. So we can go into that consult, you know, fully informed and uh, and give hopefully the best advice we can. So we're not caught on the back foot, you know, trying to understand where, where everything's at, you know, within a 45 minute window. We can go in there knowing hopefully uh, quite a bit more and already have a bit of a game planned um, in the back of our head, ready to go. Yeah, definitely. Now, is there anything that I haven't asked that you would like to let people know about AVAC services? I think the the one thing, and it's probably one thing I would like to address as well, so I'll go for it. You know, typically there's this negative stigma about paid services, and I I, we, I started AVAC. You know, I, I founded it purely because I, I have worked at your volunteer ESOs, I have worked at RSLWA, and unfortunately, a lot of these ESOs, well, near all ESOs, are heavily reliant and dependent on government grants. Now, gov- government grants they don't provide the means of financial stability uh, or sustainability that these ESOs actually need to operate. So for instance, you know, at RSOWA, um, we, we had limited resources, we had limited staffing. So we could only do so much of what we had, but yet because there's a constitution, we couldn't also turn away veterans. So the books constantly are growing, but the staffing and resources doesn't. So therefore, you know, we're, we're prone to burnout. We're prone to, you know, unfortunate, you know, errors and things like that. That's why um, I looked at the situation and thought that, you know, they are trying their hardest to provide veterans what they, what they can with what they have. But I think veterans still deserve more. And I think I was thinking I was, I'm still open to it, but I don't know how to, you know, uh, I was a grunt, so I'm, I'm very open to it. But if someone can give me an equation, which, you know, puts food on our staff's table, pays for the operational expenses and gives veterans the services that they deserve, then I'm open to that as well. But so, you know, we, because we do charge, I, you know, I, I don't just want to, you know, take all the profits and, 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 you know, make a multi-million dollar company. I want to give back to the veteran community. So we, so we too can also provide ESOs with that financial um, uh, means of continuing to provide their services and not just be reliant on grants. So we, we want to give back. We want to, you know, influence some initiatives. Um, we're going to look at rolling out potentially some psychology for veterans and then and maybe their spouses as well. And we, we just really want to be there to help support all these ESOs because, you know, for instance, one of the local RSL sub-branches from where, where we live had, I think, roughly $2,000 to, to last them the whole year. Our, our, our lease is nearly double that, so, you know, per month. So, um 
you know, it's a, it's a very hard thing to conceptualize that $2,000 is enough for a, a small RSL to provide services to veterans in a very veteran dense population. That RSL is, you know, within proximity to HMA Sterling. And so it, it, it's pretty hard hitting um, when, you, when you actually understand the nitty gritty behind the scenes and then, then the red tape and politics that also come into it as well. So I think the good thing about the paid service is we can operate with autonomy and, and do what's actually needed without having to beg for grants and um, without being really, we don't have to answer to DVA and we can do what we know is right for the veteran community. Yeah, and with the, um, with the same goal as well. Sorry, no. Um, it's with the same goal as well because ultimately, yes, we're a paid service, but we're still pushing towards the same goal, which is overall veteran wellbeing. So it's still supporting that the free services do and the ESOs, and not only them, but also the veteran various veteran charities that are out there. We're very big on giving back because we've both of us have been recipients of that early on in our transition period of that support. So we, if we can do what we can through, um, through AVAC by giving back to the veteran community and the veteran, veteran charities and the ESOs, then we're more than happy to do that. And we, we do that regularly. So it's, um, we don't want to cause a further divide between the paid and the free services. We want to, um, ultimately work together and band together to support the veteran community and overall veteran wellbeing. Yeah. And, and, and I'm just going to add on to that because you know, when I worked at an ESO, there's so much red tape and it becomes nearly a competition between the ESOs about who, who provides more services or who, you know, has the bigger building or whatever it may be. Um, but if people just cut the red tape and cut the crap and just looked at the vision and mission of each of the organisations, they go, is it the same or similar? Is there synergies at play that we're, we're, we're heading towards the same track? Why don't we just work together and not against each other? But unfortunately, because these grants are so competitive, people, people too become competitive. And I, I think sometimes that vision and mission is unfortunately lost in the process. So, you know, we want to work with all the ESOs we can so uh, we can work in harmony to achieve, I think, you know, the greater good. Yeah, yeah, because ultimately everyone is going towards yeah. that same mission, which is to help veterans and help support yeah. them and even current serving members as well. Um I just put veteran as someone who's external. <laughs> Sorry, use that. <laughs> but um, but like it's to help support not only the member but also their families as well, and to you know make sure that their their well being and it is working well for them during their time serving, but also not serving. Um, yeah, exactly right. Yeah. 100%. And if we, can, if we can take that pressure off our clients with the DVA side of things and let them just focus on getting on, mm-hmm. on transitioning and, and their health, then that's going to produce a better outcome for their families as well because that stress won't be in, the, won't be in their building, won't be in the house because it's been taken care of by us. Definitely, definitely. And um, it sounds like too that there's some really good opportunities for people out there that are, you know, needing that extra help to reach out to you to alleviate some of the stress that they may be feeling through this process as well, which is amazing. I think it's needed. 
Yeah, very much so. And, you know, that's at a minimum, as long as if we could just answer people's questions and point them in the right direction, you know, um, th th that's that's what we will do, you know. And if, if they want more than that and they want that ongoing representation or support, we're also there. But I think that if we can collectively work with all the ESOs uh, in harmony, I think that they too um, can, can continue to provide their services and hopefully become somewhat more independent of some of these government grants. You know, it, it would be really nice to, to see some of these, um, you know, other paid advocacy services also adopt a similar mindset where they too want to work with ESOs because there's no point working against each other. You know, we are, we are tracking towards the same goal. And I think that, you know, we should all come together. Unfortunately, it's a, it's a bit of a hard ask because there's a, there are some, um, you know, people, people see each other as competition in this space. And um, I think it's very disheartening and it's pretty upsetting because there shouldn't be any competition when we're talking about someone's well-being. Yeah, yeah, it, it's almost like the um, like the mateship and the joint relationships kind of get a bit strained when it comes to working outside of defence. Yeah. Yes, yeah, very much so. People lose touch of that reality, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, and what life used to be like while serving and that, um, you know, being in it to support each other rather than the individual themselves. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, thank you guys both so much for popping on and talking to me. I've loved this um, discussion and it's helped me even understand the advocacy side of things better. Like I used to work alongside DBA advocates a fair bit when I was doing off rehab, but I never got into the nitty gritty of any of it. Refer out, obviously, because of my job role, I wasn't supposed to do the claims as such. But it's great to have these types of conversations, and I think it will really help our community and the people that I'm trying to reach out to and help as well. So thank you. Thank you so much. No, thank you so much for having us and also giving us the ability to have our voice heard, um, not through just the transition, but through the through the organisation that we've established, because, you know, both both are meaning, um, you know, mean quite a lot to us. Um, you know, the transition honestly has really defined now who I am. You know, I, I've come out of the end of it, you know, and, and I really appreciate everything now I've gone through and can sit quite comfortably with my own mental health. And, and in turn, hopefully, hopefully empower others to seek the treatment that they to, you know, kind of need to, to obviously seek that same kind of closure. Um, so honestly, thank you very much for your time today as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Exit Strategy. I appreciate the support from every single one of you. If you liked what you listened to and would like to be in the know of any new episodes that are released on Mondays, you can follow the podcast on the platform that you're listening to today. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook and subscribe to our mailing list. I have linked all of these in the show notes for you. If you would like to appear on the podcast and tell your story or tell people of the organization that you run and how you support veterans, or if you would like to tell people about the organization that you have developed as a veteran, 
after your transition, we would love to hear from you. You're welcome to DM me on my platforms or you can email the exit strategy nh at gmail.com. I love having these conversations with our community and supporting you all. And until next time, I hope you all have a good day.